Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Isaac Feldberg. I'm Saskia Gager. On the show this week, Pixar returns with Elemental, and we spoke to its director, Peter Son. The Tobacco Fourth Heroes must save the world in smoking causes coughing. And for Film Club, it's Pixar's debut, Toy Story. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a little white lies podcast. Saskia, very nice to have you back. I believe the last time you were on, you had to do Cocaine Bear. Is that yeah, right? Kind of- that was it. Yeah, it feels like ages ago now. Now we're, yeah, we're, we're a long way from Cocaine Bear now. <laughs> yeah. The heady heights of cinema. Um, so for those who perhaps can't remember all the way back to when bears were taking cocaine, what is it that you do and who are you? Uh, so I'm a contributing writer to Little White Lies. So I kind of do all the all the stuff that no one else wants to do because I'm quite junior. Well, I mean, I can't wait to see the biopic of you <laughs> rising through the ranks, like the a true underdog story of that. Fingers crossed, one day. <laughs> uh, Isaac, what about you? It's very nice to introduce you to the podcast. Uh, who is it that you are? It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Isaac Feldberg. For listeners, you might not have come across my work. I'm a U.S.-based writer. I'm in Chicago currently, and I write most regularly for RogerEbert.com, uh, The Playlist, uh, and Inverse, uh, though I've kind of bounced all over whoever will have me, really, and have been in the Little White Lights pages a few times as well, uh, very gladly. Are you also living that kind of freelance life, (laughs) being across about 47 different people who all have different submission styles? The glamorous lifestyle, uh, very almost famous sort of vibes over here. Um, I wanted to ask you kind of about this like very specific crazy time that we are in, not just as film journalists, but kind of the state of films as they are. I mean, we've got the new Pixar coming up, but, you know, pandemic wise, a lot of the Pixar things were going straight to Disney Plus. And there's this kind of weird feeling in the air because not only are things going to the streaming services really quickly, but then they're being deleted really quickly too. Right, right. We're seeing this sort of ultimate consequence of moving film and cinema and television and other forms of popular media into this bucket of content that exists to take up space on some hard drive somewhere or to not if it could be deleted uh, by a studio that is looking to either 
have a tax write-off in a certain case or just to truly reduce bandwidth by minuscule incremental amounts. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're, it's quite a disturbing trend that we're seeing where a show could premiere and then just a few weeks later, it vanishes from the face of the earth with very little hope of an official home media release. I know that you were mentioning one of, a few minutes ago called Crater. Mm. Yeah, I believe that only made it kind of seven weeks on uh, on Disney Plus before it was kind of erased forever. I very much remember a few years ago, I think it was Kirsten Schall, who kind of was, her show was announced to be deleted like a couple of days later and she was frantically tweeting like, can anybody help me burn this to a DVD because I want to show it to my kids one day? And we maybe should have listened to her. It's really tragic. I mean, there's been you know, some kind of chatter back and forth about it being a lot of these Disney Plus premieres and kind of the the equi- modern equivalent of a Disney Channel original movie. Those are the things that are most commonly falling off. But just in the past few years, I, I could point to like a Robert Zemeckis movie that no longer exists anywhere. His version of The Witches of Anne Hathaway is gone, scrubbed from what is now Max. And there's another great TV show uh, starring the inimitable Catherine Hahn called um, Mrs. Fletcher that was from Tom Parada who did The Leftovers and Election and that was a, a lovely little miniseries and it just really was not being streamed enough as the official sort of stance to warrant it continuing to be streamable which I, I think it's, we're in kind of a dark place there and uh, I'm hopeful that there will be someone who comes in to create a new archive of even these more recent chosen films that have just vanished or been deleted off the hard drive. Oh, Saskia, any any reasons to feel optimistic or are you also very concerned about this? Yeah, I'm also worried about this. It's quite unsettling. Even, even the sort of, you know, this title has been temporarily removed from Amazon kind of thing. Even that is, is quite unnerving. You know, I kind of still like having DVDs, you know, it's, it's nice to have, mm. um, to have a like real library of, films instead of always being afraid that they're going to disappear into the ether so yeah Disney's particularly bad at that yeah we can't just rely on Martin Scorsese to preserve absolutely everything yeah. <laughs> other systems have to be in place unfortunately I doubt he's coming for creator oh well not not the greatest tragedy there's some other work to be done <laughs> he's busy but yeah yes he, he's busy saving saving cinema kind of one obscure African film preservation at a time. But yeah, we should move on to a kind of less obscure film. It's kind of the big summer family release. It's Elemental. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. We'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. Elemental is set in Element City, where fire, water, land and air residents live together. The story introduces Ember, a tough, quick-witted and fiery young woman whose friendship with a fun, sappy, go-the-flow guy named Wade changes her beliefs about the world they live in. Before we get on to the movie, here's Hannah Strong talking to Peter Song. Uh, I guess like the, the best place for me to start would be with how this idea came about. I know that the film is such a passion project of yours. It's been living in your head for such a long time and was inspired by your own childhood growing up in New York City as yeah. the son of immigrants. So yeah. I'd really love to know the elements of your childhood that you 
first decided you really wanted to kind of replicate and take inspiration from? Um, so much of it was trying to understand what it means to belong somewhere. And uh, a lot of childhood was trying to deal with people that would tell you that you didn't belong and that you would question your culture and all of that. And uh, that journey built all the way up, you know, like I was ashamed of being Korean in New York, you know, because you got, got, you know, made fun of. But the older I got, the more I started appreciating that heritage and my parents because they came from there. You know, like I didn't grow up there in Korea. And, uh, uh, you know, as an adult, after having kids, did I start to empathize with them and try to go, how the heck did they do this without knowing the language? Or how do they sign some contract or do their taxes when they can't read the English? And uh, it all became some sort of miracle to me, but that had a lot to do with empathy. And I saw them as people, you know, parents turning into people where they're flawed and they had all these issues. And I had this event where I got to thank them in front of a lot of people for their sacrifices that they made. It was a very emotional moment. And uh, I came back to Pixar with that anecdote and people were like, oh, Pete, that's your story. That's the film you have to do. And so it started there. As someone who's been, you know, you've been on both sides now as yeah. a actor and a director oh, of right. Pixar, yeah. can you talk about how seeing that process from both sides has impacted the way you direct films, the way you create stories? Yeah, uh, so much of it has to do with the safe space, you know? Like, I, I didn't realize in some workplaces that, like, how that pressure of not feeling safe will just cramp creativity down. And uh, as, I, as a, I'm not a trained actor, but I've, I've had a lot of experience in the booth just trying to come up with stuff. And so much of it is just feeling safe to be vulnerable. And uh, um, that experience led me to try to create the same thing with uh, working with performers and uh, trying to know that like, okay, this might be really sensitive. Let's talk about it. I don't want to push too hard. You tell me where you are. And so it's just a lot of empathetic, you know, questions. Especially with this film because the cast is younger people. Yes. And I'm, I'm not sure, is it their first time kind of doing voice roles or are they more... Um, I think Leah had done a couple and Mamadou had not. Oh wow, okay. So yeah. how do you, what, what was the first thing you talked to Mamadou about that? Because it is quite a different yes. type of acting, having to put everything in your voice as opposed to using your hands or using your facial expressions. Yeah, so much of it was just talking about the character first, right? Like how he, did he connect to it? What parts of the story did he connect to? And then vibing where he was with that, then just asking like if he had processes that he wanted to go through to find this performance. And uh, we talked about that. And then we just, you know, started talking about the pages. And then from there, you know, it was he he and I had built uh, like some layers of of a way to work that made him more comfortable and then allowed us to like be communicative. I absolutely love Wade. I love the references. I think that they're so sweet. One of the things I kind of most enjoyed and felt really novel, which it shouldn't yeah. in 2023, is yeah. this idea of being really open with your emotions and how yeah. the water family are so that they all cry all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love that as a crier. Yeah, I thought yeah. that was really, it was really nice to see because yeah. I feel like still there's this kind of message in society that yes. it's not okay for. Yeah. people to cry especially yeah. for young boys to cry and I yeah. really like thought that was so lovely that that came across so beautifully in the that's film. great I appreciate that <laughs> yes I, it's something that I totally believe in that like uh, it, there's so many layers to it about connection mental health expressing feelings and trying to understand that and starting to communicate it's just a beautiful thing and to know that the feelings that you have are valid as well yeah in the film there's this whole thing with Ember trying to kind of understand you know she feels angry all the time yeah. but learns that sometimes it, that is it's okay, okay. <laughs> yes exactly yeah it was a big one for us because the film's been in the works for such a long time obviously it must have changed in your head and kind of from when you first had this idea of yes. what if the elements were kind of personified yeah. are there any kind of 
big changes that you can think of, like yeah. light bulb moments you had about the film, where you know, kind of turn a complete corner. Yeah, there were. The, it was a sort of roller coaster ride. Like when I first started, it was all about thanking our parents, and then you know, this idea of what a fire fell in love with water and this hopeful love story. And then as we were building that, my father passed away, like right in that first year or two, and it changed. Like the film got all dark and hopeless, and it was just full of like hate and. Uh, I didn't know it at the time, but then, you know, friends were talking to you about it. Like, that story was like a war. There was a war between the city and this family, and uh, it was really dark. Oh and, uh, yeah, and then, uh, you know, the care of, of, of the, the, the my friends at Pixar were very much like, this is a dark film. We know what you're going through. Is this always what you wanted? And it's like, no, I just want to do something hopeful. And then you go, let's, let's, let's keep pushing for that. And then we found it again and that's what the film became but it was an up and down experience for sure do you feel like it helped having such a long amount of time because obviously you know animation can take yeah. a long time yeah. to come together for many reasons yeah it sounds like it was nice to kind of have a bit more time to go through all these stages all these massive life changes as well i would say yes and no i feel like sometimes it was really positive and the sometimes that extra length was just like interminable you're just like is it ever going to end? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I also read that you were very inspired by classic romantic comedies. Yes. One of the things that I think is so novel about the film, as a Pixar film, we yeah. always expect something new. And yeah. this is the first time we've had a rom-com yeah, in a yeah. Pixar film, which I really enjoyed. It feels like the films like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner mm-hmm. and Moonstruck are very much embedded in this. Like, yes. Opposites attract. Yes. Cute, very like witty back and forth they have sure, to yeah, each other. Yeah. Um, are you a rom-com person? Is oh, absolutely. Like, oh. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I can, like, remember... I consider Sound of Music a romantic comedy. Like, uh, like the idea of the captain and, and Maria von Trapp falling in love, all the way up to, like, it happened one night, uh, Philadelphia story, you know, um, the, the, the love stories uh, from world cinema. I love it. I really do. Uh, but between Richard Curtis, his brilliant writing of, of characters and, and those, you know, really surprising love stories... All the way to, you know, Ang Lee and Emma Thompson with Sense and Sensibilities and all of the Jane Austen sort of period British love stories that, uh, you know, Remains of the Day and uh, um, uh, these sort of like repressed love stories that connect to Crouching Tiger, like just all oh of it. Gosh. I just love it you know all. Your stuff. <laughs> oh, I, I am a big, huge fan of it. Uh, I, look, that's why I'm a crier. I, 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 I love I, I love it all. I mean, yeah, I think as well, like, it's lovely to bring that to kids young kind of yeah. get them started with this idea of like it's okay to feel these big emotions yeah and, you know it's it's a dangerous thing too like so young boys are not a big fan of of <laughs> syrupy stuff like this and so it was a, it was a balance yeah you've got what you can't make it too kind of girly because then you know, well i don't know if i would of, say girly well, but like yes yeah yeah, yeah yeah you know i mean at pixar as well it's you know it, it's such a high bar as well you know it's yeah. finding that kind of balance between doing something that is like incredible and new but also yeah. not too much so it's right. going to kind of you know have people going oh, and, no. <laughs> yeah but there was a really interesting phenomenon is that like we needed some of the stories to be a sort of classic because anytime we went so far because they weren't human mm. it started reeling people's minds when we were showing it like and so like if they were humans, this the story would be like, oh, that's too classic. I've seen this so many times. But anytime we tried to push it even further, people were like, but fire can't do that. And it's like, oh, wow, how do we <laughs> ground the audience, you know? Well, that's a good, a nice lead into my next question, because obviously Pixar's known for kind of research. And, yes, you know, yes. Watching um, how fur moves and animals to animate yes, their own monsters, yeah. Inc. And that yes. kind of thing. So with 
elemental what kind of things were you guys doing in order to visualize this world and to kind of decide how the elements themselves are going to be represented because yeah. obviously we all know what fire looks like we all know what water looks yes. like but imagining it in this kind of 3d animated space i feel like it must have been quite a difficult task yeah it was uh you know i always make fun of inside out because i'm like nobody's no nobody knows what emotions look like they had it easy <laughs> but everyone knows what fire and water looks like and uh um um the, the real the realistic versions were too scary and they were too difficult to, to handle. Like water was so transparent. You just saw these pool balls and that sort of like white teeth just hang, floating in there. And you're like, <laughs> wow. And everything behind the, the characters sort of like came up front. And so it's, it's, it became so much about trying to caricature it in a way that this sort of appealing sort of cartoonish features could sit in. And uh, um, that's where this idea of like, oh, when does it become fire and when does it become water? Because with Water, that was the biggest monster of the show. Once the bubbles got too slow, he turned into jello immediately. He was too viscous. When you remove the highlights, he turned into like a ghost and uh, it looked too soft. And then all of a sudden, you know, every little, because we know what water and fire looks like. And so you're always like trying to find that balance to, to let, let, let at least the audience go, oh, if she grabs it, that's going to burn, you know. Mm. And we'll say for kids to not be scared of the characters. Yes, yeah, well. like she got really scary, yeah. I mean, I love the moments where we see Wade kind of utilizing the water and yeah. like shrinking down and like being in, uh, in the pipes and things. Yeah, like, do yeah. you see the big eyes? I think that's just yeah. such a such a lovely touch. And yeah, I, yeah. I think he's adorable. I'm yeah. very taken with Wade. Um, <laughs> one of the other details in the film that I think is so imaginative and was really exciting as a language nerd yeah. was the uh, use of... Firish, oh, which yes. I know that you worked with David J. Peterson, who's such yes. a amazing, brilliant, amazingly talented brilliant. guy. Oh my gosh. Who we spoke to about, I, we spoke to him at Little White Lies for Game of Thrones, and yes. we know he's crazy good at his job yes. of creating these languages. So, could you maybe talk a little? I'm sure he would know far more, but like, yes, yes. talk a little about how that kind of came along and what your ideas were as to yeah. how it sounds in the film. Yeah, the first sort of conversation with David Peterson was trying to not appropriate another culture to try to make something unique to fire. And uh, um, immediately, you know, there were versions that he had tried that sounded so alien, like it was like bug clicking. And you're like, whoa, that's pulling me out. I'm not connecting to these characters. And then uh, we came up with this playful idea of like, could it sound like a fireplace, like the pops and crackles and sizzle of a fireplace? And uh, he took that idea and came back with this sort of chart of all the sort of fire sounds that the human voice could produce of the pop and he built this sort of alphabet using those onomatopoeia could i say yes. of of what fire is and uh, um started to form a language now he built he went so far and beyond what we could use we had a lot more of it in the film but um we had some people confused with the subtitling and so we had to boil it down but um it was the whole goal was to try to create something unique I mean, you could do a Duolingo course, you know, somewhere down the road and learn Fire-ish. Yeah, know. yeah, yeah. A little Klingon lesson in uh, yeah, a college, perhaps. Sure. Yeah. If you had to be an element, which one would you be? I'm sure people have been asking you this all the time. Yeah, it's easy. I'm a crybaby. I watch a lot of K-drama. I'm up late at night in these weird, you know, you know, rabbit holes of, like, military soldiers coming back home. And I'm just, you know, crying. You know, <laughs> in the middle the dogs, of the night. dog season. Dogs, yeah, getting adopted and, like, you know, being shaved and fed and, like, you know, you know, yeah, I'm a crybaby. I'm a water person for sure. I, yeah, I think I would like to be a fire person, but yeah, I am yeah. fundamentally a water yeah, person. Yeah, me too. I would. I want those traits, but... But like, yeah, yeah, definitely water. It's not a bad thing. We can yeah. mix of the two. Yeah, that's what yeah, the film's yeah. teaching us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Great. Perfect. Thank I'm you. Cool.
So Saskia, in your life, it's kind of the big Pixar release. Like, is that something that you look forward to? Because I remember these being major, major events for me when I was younger, but it's tapered off a bit. No, they kind of, they sort of stopped around up sort of time for me, I think, after that. Um, possibly because of the age I was, possibly because of whatever happened to them. So, <laughs> so yeah, they're not quite as big a deal in my life now. But so assuming that aside from us actually sending you out to see this, you wouldn't have like been rushing to go and see Elemental. Yeah, I don't think it would have been my first choice on the, on the cinema listings. But I mean, did you have any fun with it? Because it's, it's not a very childish film. I mean, a lot of it's about city bureaucracy and it's a love story. Um, you know, it is, I think it is pitching itself a bit to a more adult audience. Yeah, definitely. It's got some of those themes. It's like, you know, yeah, it's kind of a very colourful, ostensibly kids film about xenophobia and infrastructural failings. So yeah, it has it has got that. I think one of the first things about it that struck me and, and, and which sort of kind of put me put me off really is sort of the visuals of it, the way that it looks. It kind of sits like just at the wrong edge of the uncanny valley for me. Like I find it quite hard to to relate to just the, the smoothness of it really, I guess. I don't know. What did you guys think about that? Yeah, Isaac, I mean like the aesthetic of it. A lot of this animation kind of changes a lot with the eras, as I suppose we'll get into with Toy Story, but like how did you enjoy the aesthetic? It's interesting because we think about Pixar as having had this previous gold standard for animation and for storytelling within animation. And I think that that Pixar look was once just was once associated with such a, a kind of a novel approach to telling really emotionally driven and potent and uh, just excellent stories within the medium of animation. But more recently, we've seen a lot more experimentation in animation. We've seen films like the Spider-Man Spider-Verse films that have come in and have drawn a lot of acclaim for really mixing animation styles. And even the new Puss in Boots sequel, I'm not sure if either of you saw that one as well, but it had this similar sort of elasticity of style. And I, I think that the the elemental look, which is a much more sort of standard for Pixar, standard for Disney, everyone's a little colorful blob moving around in a cityscape that is essentially a realistic looking cityscape. It feels a little old hat that, to come in. And it's it's one of those things where I enjoyed the individual effects of the characters because they're you know little fire and little water and there's like you know the rippling flames and uh, one of them's quite gelatinous and kind of moving around and I thought that that was an interesting effect just on the individual character design level but the overall scope scope of the film I honestly felt like it uh, looked more like concept art than a finished animated product in places I had a, a little bit of issue falling into the world of the film based on that. It just uh, didn't really wow me in the way that I'd hoped that a futuristic city of elements would wow me. Yeah, definitely. Like you said, like in little individual moments, there's some joy in those, like when they're playing with the elements, like when they're sort of turning bits of wood into coal or, you know, sand into glass, things like that. You know, I, I, those are quite fun. But yeah, the overall, like, I don't know how to describe it, like candy crush kind of whamminess of the whole thing is, yeah, mm. it's just quite overwhelming. Yeah. yeah. And to me, there seemed to be some slightly jarring moments where I felt that it was going between that kind of almost photorealistic backgrounds into kind of this highly stylized, smooth animation. 
which kind of took me out of it in a second. I felt like jarred by those transitions. Yeah, absolutely. And even like, I think one of the things that these films usually do so well is to just fill the background of so many little in-jokes and things happening that you can pick up on and really be excited about just on the level of seeing this idea be fully executed of what a city of elements would look like. But here, I, I think that the commitment to bringing it more towards realism limits that in a lot of ways. Like this is a city of elements where they all take the same public transportation, for instance. And there's just stuff there that I I wish had been a little bit more committed to examining that that chemistry of elements interacting in an inner city space. Yeah, I did quite like the fact that they call the, the subway system the wetro though. That was a, yeah, <laughs> the dad joke won me over there. It's a lot of dad jokes in this So movie. many. <laughs> I think that that that's maybe a part of it is I, I think that, you know, also you've got these like cotton candy cloud puffs that don't really come into it outside of this one scene, but they're playing air ball in Cyclone Stadium. And it's just, you know, essentially like just going to watch a basketball game, but it's air ball. And so that that's like the level of the, the thought through concept here. Yeah. And the language of the fire people is fireish. <laughs> Yeah, that can't help but be like slightly delightful. But I mean, it's very conceptually complex, I would say, to the extent that the characters within the city itself don't seem to really understand how they are able to interact with one another. Like Mm -hmm. it is, which is strange because this is so long in the making that you think they kind of would have ironed out some of those details because some of it doesn't cohere. Well, You've got water people and then you have water the substance. And so that becomes kind of a bit difficult to wrap your head around. Right. I, I agree with that just because as well, like when you look at the city, if you look at the way that a lot of the buildings are drawn and designed, you're seeing like terracotta and ceramic and glass and all of these structures that point to other elements successfully interacting. And so when you're kind of standing back and looking at this relationship and they're like, elements don't mix. It's one of those things that feels like a very outdated attitude to the characters, which is, I think, a a part of the story and a part of the sort of branching out of these tight-knit communities and dating outside of those. But it doesn't quite cohere with the idea of a city that is founded with all of these elements in place. Yeah, I think that was another another reason that I couldn't quite get into it was that kind of inconsistency, like the fact that there are floods and sentient elements at the same time you know what 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 is the difference like 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 you were saying Leila like is is the kind of water as the substance not sentient on that level and yeah like how does it differ from the element people I'm picturing like a, a deleted version of that where the water flood is just a lot of like water things screaming as, as it's like going down. <laughs> just like they took that out. That didn't quite work for the family audience. It's like World War Z sort of just a flood <laughs> yeah. of like screaming water people rushing at the city. <laughs> yeah. water. I want to see that version of Elemental. But then the, the buildings are going to be quite, you know, unhappy as well because they're just like kind of stuck it is, it's an interesting thing because it really takes that idea of elements, but doesn't work it through the conceptual mechanics of that into the city. But the, it more feels like they're using the Zootopia sort of structure where, you know, they're, it's just like, what would a normal city look like if everyone was blank? And that's the sort of setup for Elemental and for Zootopia and for a few other animated films in recent years as well. I think, I don't know, did, did anyone else think of Zootopia in watching this? Um, to a certain degree. I mean, it's definitely got, both films have got like their heart in the right place and like this idea of 
reaching across and not labeling one another and being, you know, fulfilling your own potential as an individual can't help but feel that that's a good message for like young Budding Thorn fans to receive. But Zootopia, I think, cohered a little bit better for me. Yeah, I, I haven't seen Zootopia, so I was thinking more of Avatar The Last Airbender. <laughs> that was that was what it was bringing to my mind just because of the elements thing. And then also I kept thinking about Futurama. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but there's one there's one element where like Fry drinks the king of the water people, which look a lot <laughs> look a lot like the water people in this. Yeah, no, that is actually a great episode of Futurama. I might have to check that out. But before we kind of wrap up, I wanted to ask you guys about the voice performances because there's kind of been some criticism of like that, you know, something like a Super Mario Brothers just gets like a load of celebrities rather than like people that actually give voice performers. This is a kind of a less starry cast. Um, no insult to Catherine O'Hara. Um, like, did any of their kind of voice performances like stand out for you? Uh, yeah, I, I would say that I really liked uh, Leah Lewis, uh, who I recognized from uh, The Half of It, which is a very charming little movie on Netflix. Uh, she voices Amber, the sort of the main character of the film. And I thought that she had kind of a deceptively tricky role to play there where she's playing this character who is fire and needs to kind of embrace all of the tendencies of the element of of the movie, but is also playing a character who is a second generation immigrant and teenage girl who works as an assistant in her father's shop. And there's like all of these different tensions that she has to navigate within that um, outside of, you know, the sort of embodying someone who is fiery to just use that term. And I felt that she did that quite well. It was um, a very warm performance uh in a way that i enjoyed yeah i agree i think leah lewis was was really good she had a lot of pizzazz and um yeah she embodied the character really well i do think uh, mamadou athi was quite good at, at that too especially of like embodying water i think in in vocally just in terms of the way that his voice sounds and how it's quite kind of expansive but also undulating and yeah i think he, he did that nicely too and we kind of build to a surprisingly harrowing conclusion, no spoilers, but like, I mean, when it kind of goes for those big swing emotional beats trying to make you cry, did that do anything? Or do you kind of leave with, unlike the water people in these films with the, with kind of dry cheeks? Uh, no, I found that quite, quite tricky, like quite just sort of cringy, really. I was kind of up, up in my seat going, oh no, at the sort of huge sentimentality of it all. Because it, it, it just felt, some of it felt too kind of big and melodramatic to properly comprehend. Yeah. yeah. No, I have to say, I almost wanted to kick myself because I was just like, God damn it, Layla, why are you crying? Why do they get you every time? <laughs> I think a lot of it is also like, that's where the score comes in that Thomas Newman does in, in like the most sort of overpowering way is for that, that emotional finale that the film has. And I think that that element of the film really got to me. I was more, I think, committed to their romance than I was the overall sort of concept of the film, which I had more trouble with, but on like a, a kind of a low key sweet level, I, I did think that it ultimately got where it was going just a little bit more in a rickety fashion than I'm used to from Pixar. Yeah, it did have the kind of that sort of very sweet fairy tale quality to it, which is at the heart of Pixar, and that kind of you can't help but but like be a little bit moved um, at that, especially in in, in moments like um, uh, not to give me spoilers, but the the bit where he uh, where Wade takes takes Ember to see the flower, 
you know, that, that bit's it's really nice and also because of the score kind of, you know, tugs at your heartstrings a bit. And the other bits are the, the kind of bits to do with kind of forgiving your parents as well. I thought those those bits were quite, did get to me emotionally quite a bit. Um, yeah, and like sort of understanding the sacrifices that, you know, your parents have made and then and then forgiving them for making them. I thought those, those bits were those bits were good. So Saskia, do you want to go first with what your scores are in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? Yeah. Um, so I think in anticipation, I, I didn't have super high hopes going into it. I'd sort of seen a few too many things drifting about the internet saying that it could have been written by AI, um, which I don't think have now having seen it were quite justified. But um, but yes, I think my anticipations were quite low. So I'm going to put that at a two. Um, and then for enjoyment, I think three. Um, there were definitely lots of moments that were really nice, but yeah, the overall impression of it was a little bit kind of clunky. And then uh, in retrospect, probably also a two. That that might change when there's been more distance between between me and Elemental. But um, yeah, I think maybe maybe I watched did, maybe I watched these in the wrong order. I think if I if I'd watched this first, I might have had more more sympathy, been more forgiving to it than if I had watched Toy Story first which is what I did so yeah but um at the screen that I went to it had a little up short at the beginning which was great so <laughs> so that was really good but yeah two in retrospect for now yeah I mean um certainly Elemental didn't have me uh weeping crying like up to <laughs> so perhaps not the best thing to be reminded of just before you go into it but um Isaac what about you what are your scores and I would say it's funny because I didn't actually have the upshort ahead of my screening of the film. Uh, and I'm kind of curious to see that uh, because I was thinking about Up and I was thinking about Ratatouille and all of these Pixar high points before going in to Elemental. And so I would say my anticipation was almost at a four, especially because like Saskia, I am a big Avatar The Last Airbender fan and you know was just excited to see what Pixar would do with that with the elements, the premise reminded me of Inside Out a bit uh, and had that similar potential. I think Inside Out is one of the, the better Pixar highlights in more recent years. So the anticipation was a four. I would say my enjoyment was probably around a two. I did struggle a lot with the way that the script was written. I felt like they were trying to check all of the boxes in a certain respect, and I didn't think that it really did so in a convincing or organic way. Um, and so I was quite disappointed by that. In retrospect, it's, it sat there at the two for me. Yeah, I think I'm at a kind of similar place to you guys. I couldn't, yeah, probably a three in anticipation, three in enjoyment, because I actually did weirdly believe in their love. <laughs> and I found her relationship with her father so endearing, but probably kind of around that 2.5 zone in retrospect. Um, not one of Pixar's finest, but... You know, having sat through the Super Mario Brothers film, it, you know, it was a cut above that sort of thing. So hopefully there's still some life in the old Pixar dog yet. Next up, it's Smoking Causes Coughing. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Smaking causes coughing follows the misadventures of a team of five superheroes known as the Tobacco Force. After a devastating battle against a diabolical giant turtle, the Tobacco Force is sent on a mandatory week-long retreat to strengthen their decaying group cohesion. So that's quite an unusual synopsis, but I kind of feel, Isaac, like that doesn't capture the heart of it in terms of like what a strange little film this is. I completely agree. I, I think that, you know, the superhero parody that the film has been marketed with, which is a part of its overall pastiche of the takusatsu uh, genre of stuff, which is, you know, beyond superheroes, also kaiju, also mecha, like that sort of world, that sandbox that Depew is playing in with this film. Um, I think it's a perfect fit for him because it does allow him to literally pick up his toys and play with them and put them down and then pick up something else to play with. And that's very on par with kind of my understanding of Depew and the previous films that he's made, that when you watch something that he's done, whether it's the killer tire movie Rubber or Deerskin, in which Jean Dujardin has this coveted deerskin jacket that also turns murderous by the end of the movie. You you just know that he is going to go in some absurd direction and it is going to be calm and it is going to be affable, but it's going to end up in this completely deranged place uh, from where the film started. And I think smoking causes coughing absolutely from that initial focus on the tobacco force who are very anti-smoking as their name might not suggest it ends up going in this almost anthology direction where he just truly starts cycling through things at a faster breezier pace and did that kind of all cohere together for you in the end all these kind of strange threads that it kind of uh, that come out of the movie well what i'll say is that I was lucky enough to see this one in a theater, which wasn't the case for Deerskin, which came out during the pandemic and was not the case with Mandibles, which is another one he made about two guys who find a giant fly. Both of those I had to watch sort of on my own, off of screeners. And I got to see Smoking Causes Coughing in the theater. And whether or not it coheres together as a narrative, I felt like my theater was laughing and engaged and really enthusiastic about it the entire time. And when it concluded it was just kind of like okay well that was hilarious but it's not something that I found myself overthinking does this 
get from point A to point C. It's more of a data sketch than it is any sort of direct progression. Uh, how about for you? Did you did you find that it all gelled or at least worked as a piece for you? Um, I think I'm in a similar place where it's, I just found it funny, whatever it is that kind of, find, you know, my brain wise, the, I kind of met it at that point where I just, the entire time I did find it, you know, funny. And then if you're kind of getting that, you know, it just felt like it was doing what it was setting out to do. I mean, Saskia, what about for you? I mean, comedy is kind of the most subjective of all, I think, the genres. Like, did you kind of vibe with the humour of it all? Yeah, absolutely. This, this, yeah, the same as you guys, really. Although I did just sort of cheat with this one. So I saw it a kind of a month and a bit ago um, to review it and saw my review the other day and, and thought, oh, I think... I think some of that might be bollocks. Um, so I went, <laughs> I went to see it in the cinema and really got it, I think, properly then. I enjoyed it a lot more on the second viewing and, uh, yeah, really found it... I, I, I found it funny this, the first time, but I, I really, really found myself laughing the second time around. And I liked some of the things about it that you were mentioning, Isaac. Like, I really liked how you can kind of see... I, I hadn't seen a Quentin GP film before but um but you could really tell that he was kind of regurgitating his influences in a really funny way you know there was this really nice mix of kind of homage and gentle piss take for all of the things that you can um that you can see he's been influenced by like i mean i i, I could see kind of star trek and thunderbirds and ninja turtles you know with the, with the rat boss um and all those things are kind of they're hinted at and very lightly parodied but in, in a way that's yeah just very entertaining Absolutely, especially once he gets into the stories that they that this the tobacco force end up telling around the campfire, and he just does these almost like Twilight Zone episode style stories that are of different degrees, different lengths, and I feel like it expands even the, the amount of things that he's able to bring in. There's you know one about people who find a thinking helmet, and one person in this group is a social media influencer. One person ends up completely in social deprivation within this thinking helmet and just completely gets into her own head and ends up going in a quite a dangerous direction for the rest of the group. And I think there's a lot of sort of playful commentary in those stories, but they happen in such a, a breezy and bizarre way that it's impossible to take it all seriously, which I think is a huge part of what he's after. He's a, he's a very relaxed kind of hangout dude vibe uh, filmmaker. Yeah, I, I love the way that each of the the vignettes kind of work on their own as well as shorts. I like I really like that. I love the th- the third one as well, the um the one about the guy who gets stuck in a wood chipper. I thought that was just so kind of brilliantly gory and like gruesome in the best comedic way. I love that. Blanche Gardon as as his uh grandmother, I think, who's who sees him uh get into this real predicament and is horrified and he's just completely fine with it and he doesn't quite he's he's just like you know oh no you know this is fine and i i could kind of relate to that guy in the wood chipper you know i I think in 2023 as we're all sort of heading towards whatever we're all heading towards there's a certain calm that i really enjoy in his films that no matter how strange or horrible or revolting in, in cases in this film uh the circumstances are everyone is reacting as if it is business as usual um and that that's something that i did find also compelling as part of its overall commentary on superhero films, where there are these 
massive stakes that are always so outsized and there's no reprieve from these galaxy multiverse level stakes that the characters are fighting for. Here, it's literally just team bonding. And I, I love that it sort of shrinks all of that down very effectively over the course of the film. Before we get them scores on Saskia, I'm curious, like I've, I've only seen this the once, but like upon second viewing, what was it that changed for you? I, I think noticing sort of more of the, more of the really funny little nuances, like the kind of how unflattering their costumes are and all the really entertaining little inserts, like the, when they go on the retreat, uh, they've got kind of in the place that they're staying, they've got kind of seawater showers and they sleep on titanium beds and they have um, a, it's like this kind of TARDIS style um, supermarket fridge. So they open the doors and then there's a whole shop inside with a little lady, you know, um, serving them and, and all those kinds of really fun little details, I think, that amped it up for me. I also really loved their little robot. I, I just want to give a little mention to Norbert the robot, who I, I have seen all kinds of comparisons of what people thought of with with the robot. But for me, it was very much the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, Douglas Adams style of humor. And just that scene where it, it's perfectly timed, where the robot is just at the edge of this dock contemplating, and then it just rolls forward. Um, and I just think that he's such a master of doing the, that kind of beat where you're almost sure that nothing is going to happen because everything has just kind of stayed still and static. And then with this tiny flourish, he just delivers this perfect punchline. Yeah, I'm with you. Norbert was so fantastic. I was I was kind of, before coming on here, I was comparing it in my brain to Elemental as well. I was like, God, Norbert managed to you know, endear himself to me so much more in a few seconds of screen time than like any of the elemental characters did. And uh, yeah, it's, it's something about the way that he moves and it's also perfectly timed that, yeah, he's, he's so good. Yeah. Where's that action figure for Disney? Like the amount that Disney will make for elemental, I would like my Norbert Quentin Depew action figures. Well, I mean, we might be able to sort that out because, I mean, Disney's getting all of these tax breaks from deleting all of that content. <laughs> like, there's plenty of money out there at the moment and not paying its writers, so, you know. Yeah, if you're listening. Some Norbert <laughs> figures, maybe a Chef Didier puppet. David's our loved loyal fan, loyal listener. Um, but Isaac, uh, would you want to go first then with getting some scores on this uh, in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? Sure. I would say in anticipation, I always want to be as breezy and relaxed as Quentin Depew feels making his film. So I would go with a three. I went in trying to keep my expectations uh, medium. I, I was looking back over my letterbox score for what I rated this and I put it down as a four and a half out of five star when I am um, first viewing and I, it really has only endeared itself to me more on subsequent rewatches. So I would go with a five for my enjoyment factor. I'd say this is one of the funniest films that I've seen this year. I'm not sure what else I would, I would put in that category. I think I've been watching a lot of heavy things so far this year, but this was a, re- a nice breath of fresh air. Um, and in retrospect, cause I always like to shame myself for doing five stars. I'll go down to a four for the, yeah, for looking back on it. We call that a soft five. <laughs> or at least that's what Campbell A. Campbell calls them when you kind of, you do it for the enjoyment, but you can't quite let yourself hang on to it. Saskia, what about you? Uh, similar, I think. I'm going to go for three in anticipation just because I hadn't, hadn't seen any DP films before and everybody had kind of gone, whoa, he's crazy. So, uh, so yeah, I didn't, um, I didn't quite know what to expect. 
And then for enjoyment, the second time around, definitely, I'll, I'll do a soft five, a four um, as well for enjoyment. I think, um, yeah, it, it was, it just kind of perfectly got the kind of earnest silliness that it was going for. And, and I really like that. Um, yeah. And then in retrospect, yeah, it, it grew on me in memory already. So another four. Um, and another thing, like it, it really did put me off cigarettes as well. So the, the tobacco force did their job. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, for me, probably a fours across the board. I think I was at a kind of four three until I had this conversation and now I'm kind of desperate to rewatch it and pick up on some of these other little details. But yeah, no, it's, it's, it's weird. It's delightful. It's kind of unnerving in all the best ways. I, I had a great time. Next up, it's Film Club. 2 Story takes place in a world when toys come to life when humans are not present. An old-fashioned pull-string cowboy doll named Woody and a modern space cadet action figure Buzz Lightyear clash, as Woody develops jealousy towards Buzz when he becomes their owner Andy's favourite toy. So Saskia, you mentioned that you watched this first ahead of Elemental. So you've done the bookend of the entire Pixar world. I mean, how do you feel the state of things have gotten in comparison to this high height? Oh, well, it was just, it's its kind of hard to follow that, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, Toy Story, is, it's just so good. I hadn't seen it for, because since I was absolutely tiny. So I was kind of a little bit nervous to rewatch it in case it wasn't all that. But it was it was so just so good. I mean, like the, the, the animation has, has aged a little bit, but you, you get over that really fast because of the, you know, how, how kind of great the script writing is and, and uh, you know, how quickly the, the sort of story takes hold. So, no, it's, it's just so fantastic. So, so many brilliant lines right from the off. I mean, when, uh, what is it? It's Mr. Potato Head. He so, like, makes a little crack at how Woody has laser envy when Buzz arrives. Like, it's, it's, it's great. So no, I, um, yeah, I, I thought it was so fantastic. And, and it does maybe, yeah, it, it may, maybe does cast a, comparing it to Elemental sort of, um, yeah, make, it makes you think that things have gone a little bit awry with, um, with Pixar and that they keep kind of trying to reinvent the wheel and coming up with these more and more convoluted stories that they don't really need to do because, you know, Toy Story is it's a really simple story when you think about it. And it's very, very lean. It's, you know, it's, it's very short. It's kind of 81 minutes long and, and it's, it's very, very taut in the way that it kind of tells its story and the, the stakes comparatively very low. So, yeah, it just kind of makes you think that, that Pixar kind of, yeah, needs to keep it a bit simpler. It's an interesting one because from what I understand, kind of Pixar launched with Steve Jobs and at the helm and he very much saw Toy Story as a way to kind of market the new technology that they'd created. And that was really what people were going to be so impressed by. So it's kind of interesting coming to it all these decades later and being like, well, that is no longer the impressive part. But there is like strangely a huge amount of like heart and storytelling and like craft at the center of this kind of more as like a narrative and voice performances and like Steve Jobs was not was kind of focusing on the wrong thing the tech is really not what made this special no not at all I mean yeah obviously it still holds up so so that's quite you know that's a, a testament to the tech but yeah Isaac, for you, revisiting Toy Story, were there kind of some elements that uh, stood out most for you? Yeah, I, I'm, I really agree with a lot of what you're saying about the, the story of the film really 
enduring and it being this, this really wonderful universe that they create in a kid's bedroom, just with this sort of realm of, of imagination that so many children in the audience could relate to, so many adults could relate to it because they're the ones who bought all of those toys and hoped it would have this kind of imaginative effect for their kids. And so that part of it really is just timeless. And I think Toy Story at this point, we can call it a classic in that respect. I, I think about the fact that, you know, they spent three years rewriting the script for Toy Story when this was first being in development. And there was a lot of sort of, you know, questioning of like whether or not this was going to be worth Disney's investment, Pixar as a company and the technology that they were investing in. And we have had so many versions of that conversation about is Pixar, you know, really worth it? And are they continuing to do good work? And so that was one of those moments at which everything really clicked. And I think one of my main takeaways from it is that Whereas Elemental, I think, reminds me a lot of modern animation and in the sort of the weightlessness of everything, there is this kind of reality to the world that the toys inhabit in Toy Story and that technology that you're talking about, the the three-dimensional aspect of it, and also just the way that the characters move. There's this tactility to it, and there's this freedom of movement that I think was new in animation at that time and still feels sort of revelatory when you watch it now, which is interesting, given how many other films have sort of learned and built upon Toy Story's style. I think seeing it play out in that way, you can really feel the sense of animators creating spectacle and just knowing that they were doing something special and bringing something to life that was inanimate um, on multiple levels. So I, I think that that part of Toy Story really moved me a lot more than I was expecting. And It makes more sense now in hindsight to me why I was bawling throughout Toy Story 3, because this is a franchise that really did build and in sort of its emotional pull and all out of that connection to your child mind. Yeah. I mean, there is something about this film that should be deeply cynical. I mean, on the just on the fact that, you know, on a product placement level, because they haven't just gone with kind of, you know, generic toys. Like these are kind of very much products. Like you can always buy a Mr. Potato Head. You can buy a Slinky. You can buy a Barbie. But there's something kind of irresistible in its core that makes you forgive all of that kind of naked profiteering. It's quite self-aware in that as well, like, when the toys are kind of comparing their stamps, you know, say made in Taiwan or made in China and all those kinds of things. And all the references to fossil fuels as well. I think it's quite, um, it's quite, yeah, self-aware and and funny about that without without ever quite slipping into being totally cynical. Mm. And even like a Truman Show-esque element to it too of, of, you know, Buzz realizing that because he he thinks he's a real space ranger. And then as over the course of the movie, his journey is to see a TV commercial and realize that he himself is a toy. And I, I thought that that was just so well done. And in does it have that sort of story arc be within the larger story of Toy Story, but it's not the only thing going on in the plot, I think speaks to what a kind of swift and confident movie this is to build a character like that, but to have as much attention and as much time for someone like Woody, who has a completely different emotional arc over the course of the film. 
Yeah, it's wonderful. That moment with Buzz, when Buzz realises he's a toy is kind of so tragic. It was funny, actually. I was watching this with my brother, who's um, he's studying philosophy at the moment, and he's just got onto existentialism. And so when you know Buzz does that leap and realises he can't fly, sees the commercial, realises he's a toy, and my brother was kind of standing up, pointing at the telly, going, ah, suck on that, Sartre, you know. <laughs> it, it does, um, yeah, it, it packs a lot into moments like that that you can look at at various levels of depth, which is really nice. And you, you see different things in those parts and those moments as you get older. I think that's another thing that makes it a classic is that it kind of grows with you in many ways in terms of the jokes that you get and and the way that you see different scenes. Yeah. There's, I mean, after watching this, there is still something, I mean, sequels may vary, but there's still something so devastating to me just at the beginning of Toy Story 4 where they're kind of, they allow themselves to accept that they're going to go live in the cellar in a box and that's kind of okay. And like, you know, we have, we have become obsolete within our universe and we will embrace nothingness now. Yeah, there, there is a certain tint to it of being about mortality and being about understanding the idea of your own lifespan that is a lot heavier than I think Pixar has gone into in recent years. And I, I think watching it now, Looking back, you can also look at the voice performances and see like, you know, Don Rickles as Mr. Potato Head and just really treasure that performance and just know that it, the the actors who voiced these toys and gave them life really did so in a way that has endured as much as the film. And I think it it stands as a testament to that sort of era of voice actors as well, though some of them are still with us like Tom Hanks. God, it only just occurs to me like that now I think Tim Allen, as much as he has uh, said some th- things publicly that aren't perfect, um, uh, he's such a good foil to Hanks, you know, in his performance. He's so good as Buzz Lightyear. And I just had the memory of Lightyear come flooding back where we genuinely took out the uh, Tim Allen of it all. And there was a movie based on the life of the guy who the toy was based on. What the hell? <laughs> What was that? No, I, I don't well, remember that. <laughs> yeah, that does. It feels like a terrible fever dream after watching this. I've completely erased it from my memory. It does. It's it's sort of the animated equivalent of doing solo without Harrison Ford. And you're just you're like, what what is this movie? Why why are we going in this direction with it? How is this the takeaway for what people want after seeing Toy Story? Is to have have something that. I remember there was a lot of confusion about it, even when they were promoting it. And they were like, no, this is not the origin story of the toy. This is the origin story of the real life fictional hero who inspired the toy, the fictional toy. Is that a thing though? Do we have Neil Armstrong toys? I don't think we do. (laughs) No, it's too far beyond infinity that. Well, at least we have a lovely note to wrap up on and people can now cast light year from their memories <laughs> as they rightly should Saskia do you want to go first with what is your non-movie recommendation yeah um so I recently went to the Hunterian Museum the recommendation for if you happen to be in London or passing through yeah it's been closed for renovations for ages and ages um and has has recently reopened so it's um it's one for you if you're a fan of yucky medical things in the, in the spirit of Quentin Dupuis. Um, so yeah, it's attached to the um, Royal College of Surgeons and has lots and lots of creepy crawly things and organs in jars. Um, but yeah, it's the collection of 
uh, John and William Hunter, and it has a mixture of kind of anatomical and zoological bits. And yeah, it makes you glad to be living in the 21st century. Like at least one thing to be glad of that. So yeah, it's um, it's good. No, I'm I'm grateful every day to live in a world with anesthesia. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that that sounds incredible i mean like is it like really not for people who get squeamish though i imagine probably not for people who get squeamish there is some like there are some nice bits with you know pickled plants and stuff like that so there are there are bits that you can like if you're squeamish you can skim over and go to the nicer bits um but yeah more if you're more if you're not oh great me and all the rest of the sickos will be heading out there <laughs> isaac what about you what's your non-movie recommendation so you can tell me if this is cheating slightly, but it's it's honest. Um, I recently finished um, just kind of in one sitting uh, this edition of a close-ups publication that is part of the Little White Lies releases. It's on New York Movies, and it's by Mark Ash, who's a great critic. And I just you know devoured it. it it's you know this pocket guide, so it is um, only a, a couple hundred pages, but. It's just this fascinating way to do a a book about New York movies, because what Ash does is he just he guides you on this tour of the city by borough and connects all of these different films based on their geographic um, resonance and their their sort of portrayal of New York at these different eras and in these different locations. And it's um, just brilliant. I mean, there's there's a comparison he makes where he connects Brian De Palma's cruising to the Dakota Johnson rom-com How to Be Single based on how they reflect this neighborhood that has been rapidly gentrified over the decades between those two films being made. And so it's just a really unusual way to think about New York as a cinematic setting and as an object itself. And, you know, Mark Ash is just a great writer. And so I was really delighted to find something like this, which was a full, a full book that he was able to put together on New York film. Oh, that does sound wonderful. I do. I wonder whether I can pull any strings and get a free copy, Saskia. <laughs> I can, I can ask, can ask around. No, that sounds really, really cool. I, I think I have to read that before I go to New York. I've never been. So yeah, I have to get a copy of that. Oh, you're going to New York soon? Um, in the autumn. Yeah, but yeah, I've never never been to the states, so I think that would be a that would be a good introduction. Best best time of year to go. Well chosen. So if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email Truth and Movies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at lwlies. Next week, another mission proves impossible in the franchise's seventh installment, Dead Reckoning. Squaring the Circle tells the story of the creative geniuses behind some of the most iconic album art of all time, and we spoke to its director, Anton Corbin. And for Film Club, we'll be taking a look at an earlier entry in Tom Cruise's oeuvre, The Colour of Money. Thanks very much for tuning in, and if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movie, hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Isaac Felberg and Saskia Gager. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.